All right, good morning, beloved. Great to see all of you here today. This time we come to the preaching of God's Word. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Our focus this morning will be in verses 5 through 9. Before our context, I do want to begin reading back in verse 1. And I'll read down to verse 10. So we are in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, those last couple of verses really um, summarize the picture that's um, Paul's painting for us. Um, he's essentially saying, verse 9, um, since you have put off the old self, which is described for us back in verse 3 as having died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, so since you have died and put off that old self with its practices, Paul says, therefore, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. Now you might be wondering, but if my old self has already died with Christ, then why does Paul say to put to death what is earthly in you? Didn't all that just die with our old self? And the answer to that question in this passage, I think you can find in verse 10. Because Paul says the new self is being renewed. Being renewed. In other words, at the moment of your salvation, you really did put on the new self. This was a real profound transformation in which Christ gave you a new heart, put a, a new spirit within you, with all new desires. That's the new self, he says in verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And we can say this, and we can also see this reality in verse 9, when it says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have, it's been completed, and have put on the new self. These are becoming who you are in Christ statements. Becoming who you are in Christ statements. If you have put off the old self when you died with Christ, then why would you go back to it and put it back on? 
And the picture that Paul's painting here, which I described earlier, is like somebody you know, coming home um, after a long day of work at, say, the, the town dump, something really a dirty, smelly kind of job, and you're completely um, filthy from head to toe. You feel disgusting. Your clothes are painted on you, a combination of filth and sweat and grime. And when you get home, you strip all those dirty clothes off. You go jump into the shower, get cleaned up, and, you know, after you're done, oh, man, doesn't it feel great after you've had a hard day's work, you're real dirty, get all cleaned up and fresh. And so you're no longer filthy. You've been, you've been made clean when you come out of the shower. But imagine if after you had gotten all cleaned up, you got out of the shower and decided to go over to that old clothes of dirty, nasty, stanky clothes, and you were to put those filthy clothes back onto your clean body. Who would do that? Nobody, hopefully, right? And yet, how many times have we gone back and clothed ourselves with the filth of this world after having been washed clean with the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Paul says, therefore, we must put to death what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Now remember, in the first two chapters, Paul has demonstrated repeatedly the, the supremacy of and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, the focus up to this point has been Christ is all you need. Uh, when we come to chapter 3, even it kind of continues, for we have all died in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3. We have all been raised with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Chapter 3, verse 3. This is who we are. We are now new creations in Christ and have put off the old self and, and have put on the new. And because of who Christ is and, and because of what Christ has done, because of these realities of our life and death in Christ, because we have everything we need in Him, therefore we need to live consistently with that identity. And so, in light of all these glorious truths, this is who we are. And it sets the standard for how we are to live. It gets very practical from this point of the book forward. And Paul kind of sums it up. That's why I read verse 17, because I want this sort of to be in the background as we're going through these verses. Not only the mercy and the grace and our salvation is in Christ alone, but as far as when we're being commanded as things we need to do, we are reminded by whatever we do in word or deed. And this is going to affect the, the two lists of sins. One of them is focused on words. The other one's focused on deed. And so Paul kind of summarizes this whole thought. Whatever you do, whatever you're doing, Christian, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Everything we do in word, everything we do in deed, should be consistent with our, ident our identity in Christ. It should be done in the name of Christ, and it should be done as an expression of our gratitude given to God the Father for what he has done through his Son. Now this means on the positive side that we need to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. That's what we saw last week in the opening four verses. 
keep seeking, that was a continual, keep seeking, keep on seeking the things above where Christ is. The things that are good and acceptable and perfect, Philippians 4. And that was the message last week. We have died with Christ and, and he has raised us up and he has seated us, Ephesians 1 and 2, in the heavenly places. He is in us and we are in him, John 15. And, and we want to live in a heavenly expression of these realities. And in order to do so, Paul says in verse 5, we need to put to death what is earthly in you. And it involves the process of killing that old life in a practical way. Now positionally, and I want to clarify this for you, positionally, that's already been done. Already been done. Okay? When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, having been birthed from above, born again, God, as an act of His sovereign power, killed that old life and gave you new life. But that has to work that thing out. Work out your salvation. This thing has to work itself in you practically. In an everyday kind of living. You've been made dead to sin and alive in Christ. You've died to that old life. Died to the old ambitions. Died to the old man. Died to the old self-will. And it's like what Jesus said in Luke 9.23. Let him deny himself and take up his what? Cross. Daily. you got to die daily. You see, daily for the life of the Christian is an exercising of dying over and over again. The Apostle Paul put it this way, I die what? Daily. I die daily. I'm in the business of dying to self and the things of this world. And we talked about it some last week, how you'll never really be able to ascend into the heavenlies and really live this risen life that we're called to live until you die to the things of this world. It's a radical kind of thing that has to take place and you really got to just cut the cords and be with it. Pulled out of the world we looked at last week. Now, in reality, I think all of us want to do that, and we, we endeavor to do that, and we're empowered to do that by the Holy Spirit. But with all the heavenly instruction, uh, instruction about setting our minds on things above, none of the things that are on the earth, Paul comes down real fast to an earthly reality with another therefore in verse 5. If you're going to live the risen life, if you're going to leave the world in order to reach the world, if you're going to have to deal with, um, you're going to have to deal with what remains on earth of your sinfulness. We're going to have to deal with that, and that requires us to to progress in our sanctification, as the vices of our previous spiritual condition are replaced with the virtues of our new life in Christ. And in these verses, Paul teaches us. How do you become who we are in Christ as we learn to live according to our identity in Christ by putting off the old self, our, our former nature, and, and putting on the righteous conduct of our Redeemer's nature? Now, the process of sanctification always includes two components. The negative aspect, sins that are forsaken, and the positive aspect of holiness as pursued. 
sins that are forsaken, and holiness as pursued. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And in our passage this morning, Paul exhorts these believers in both those areas, sin and holiness, as he uses this clothing metaphor in the process of taking off and, and putting on, as he explains for us in order to clothe ourselves in righteousness, we must first cleanse our lives of sinfulness. So we got two points this morning. You'll see those outlined on the back of your bulletin, and we'll begin where we'll spend most of our time with Paul's first command to put to death our sinful passions. Put to death our sinful passions. Notice it in verse 5. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Let's stop right there for a moment. If you have like um, an old English translation, a, a old King James, it says, kill therefore your members which are on your earthly body. Kill your members. And that is closer to the language actually that Paul uses here. And what he's not talking about is some self-castration or inflicting some unnatural wounds or inflictions on your physical bodies like the ascetics just did. Um, it's not about that. Paul just <laughs> denied that in at the end of chapter 2. It's more like what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29 through 30, when he said that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't saying that literally. <laughs> He's not saying literally cut off your right hand or tear out your right eye. It causes you to sin. He, he is saying deal drastically with any part of your body, any member of your body that causes sin, that causes you to sin. And that's what Paul's saying in verse 5 when he's talking about putting to death what is earthly in you. It's talking about killing in the spiritual sense. A key verse to also carry along with us as we, we go verse by verse through this section is Romans 8.13. Really, Romans chapter 7, really, Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 could be your commentary for this section. But in Romans 8.13, it kind of sums up in a, in a small slice for us. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay? Straightforward. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is what Paul is talking about. Now, he doesn't include the Spirit in this section. Okay? And so it's very easy to read this, read this section and just go, man, it's all up to me. i got to clean up my life. <laughs> and so that's why we have to use the full counsel of the word of God to exegete each passage because the Bible talks about separate parts and separate areas. And it bounces off itself. 
and you see one picture and then he blows up a bigger picture and then he zooms in real tightly. And if you're going to live this risen life to the max, though, you, you've got to be killing the deeds of the sinful flesh. You've got to kill that which threatens that, that which, which pulls you down into sin. Paul even said in Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is my flesh. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. We can relate. And so at the end of the day, the members of our body can either be instruments of righteousness or instruments of iniquity. And so while Paul and everyone else can relate to this very real struggle, he gives us a clear directive in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, to be clear with you, this is an eritus active imperative, which simply means a once and for all point of action. Paul says, kill it. Stop playing around with it. Kill it. Come to the point in your life where you make that final permanent commitment to once and for all kill that piece of sin that so easily ensnares you. Put it completely out of your life. This is what this text tells us to do. It was Jonathan Edwards. I read a lot of, I've got a big thick book of all of his sermons and um, I was reading his book and uh, one of his sermons and, and he said this, he said, sin is like a dreadful evil hanging about, clevering fast to the, to the soul and ruling over it and keeping it in possession and under absolute command. It hangs, says Edwards, like a viper to the heart or rather holds it as a lion does its prey. So we have some conflict, don't we? Right? We're seeking the things above, these heavenly realities where Christ is, and at the same time, we're putting to death what is earthly down here. Now Paul wants to help us with this. And he wants to help us not only with a list of sins that we need to be dealing with, but there's a certain pathology here also that I think will be helpful once you consider it and we work our way through it. Now, before we get into these sins, it's worth noting there's two lists of sins. There's one in verse 5 that you can see, and then the second list is down in verse 8, and it goes into verse 9. Some characteristics of it. The first list deals with perverted love. The second list deals with perverted hate. The first list deals with our passions, the second list deals with our practices. The first list is more personal. The second list is more social. And though these are two very important lists that act as instruction for us, they are not an exclusive list of sins. Paul gives many, many lists of sins in his letters, and they are never meant to be an um, exhaustive lists. Some of them are just samples of characteristics of sins, 
and this is that, but more. Because built into this is a certain pathology that will really help us greatly in putting to death our sin. So let's look at these and go through it and see how these come out. This first list of sins in verse 5, so I'll just read the verse again. Paul says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetous, which is idolatry. I want you to notice the sequence of this list. Notice that he starts with sexual immorality and he ends it with idolatry. Um, Paul progresses backwards. As he starts with the act, the sexual immorality, and then he works his way back to the motive as we go down the list. Starts with sexual immorality, that's the evil act. Sexual immorality takes place because of impurity. And impurity comes from a perverted passion and desire, which in turn comes from covetousness, which is idolatry. That's the pathology here that we're going to go through. So let's look at just each of these terms, but it, it is meant to, to be studied as a list together. First, Paul says, put to death sexual immorality. And, and the root word here is pornea in the Greek. We all know what the English word of that is. That's where we get uh, pornography, por pornography, pornographic. It's actually derived from perneo, which means a selling off of or surrendering of sexual purity. It's sometimes translated as fornication. To make life nice and simple for everyone here, there's only one lawful sexual relationship as far as God is concerned. That's between one man and one woman who is married. That's it. Anything outside of that is unlawful. And it falls into the category of sexual immorality. Now, we live in a world that has long ignored that. We live in a world where virtually any sexual act between anyone is not only accepted, they now, I think, make months to celebrate it. But God says the only acceptable sexual act is between one man and one woman in the covenant of, of marriage. Now, this kind of behavior springs from the next word on Paul's list, impurity. Impurity simply means um, uncleanliness. Our Lord's words in Mark 7, 20 through 23 will help us probably to see this. Jesus says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceeds the evil thoughts of fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. The problem is not outside of us, it's what? Inside. It's a heart issue. Sexual immorality and impurity are both mentioned as the deeds of the flesh in that long list in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and are a product of impure thoughts. You guard your mind and you control your sexually impure conduct. We went through Romans 12, 1 through 2. Renew your mind, be transformed. And remember, Paul is saying all this to people who essentially had come to Christ in a pagan world in which all kinds of sexual immorality 
was acceptable. It was much like our time today. Having concubines was uh, acceptable. Pedophilia was acceptable. Homosexuality was acceptable. Relations before and outside of marriage with virtually anyone was acceptable in much of the pagan world. And in fact, much of it was part of their religion we read about in scripture in both the Old and the Old Testament. There were temple prostitutes associated with false worship and all this accommodated this immoral behavior. And so Paul is saying something to the pagan world that would have been totally foreign to them. And he says, if, if you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. That means kill all impurity in your life. Because what does it lead to? Sexual immorality. How, you ask? Well, if you were able to look back and, and get a perspective, you allowed an impure thoughts to come into your mind. And when they came in and occupied your mind, they created a little foothold in there. Just got to leave the door open just a little bit. And sin can come right in there and, and get in. And a seed was planted of sexual immorality. Now, as we go down further, I want you to notice the next enlisted passion. The NIV has a good translation of this. They translate it lust, and, and it's the word uh, pathos in the Greek, and it means a passion or, or lust. And what passion is describing for us is what's behind the impure thoughts. That's what's driving the impure thoughts. Passion, lust. Passion, we can say, is what we were lusting over. It was deep seeded fire that can easily fan into flames. And then behind that is the term evil desire. Now evil desire reaches down even a little bit deeper into what we really are, this sinful nature. It's a Greek word, epiothema, which means a, a um, passionate longing. And it's, again, this idea of lust and, and longing for something that's forbidden. The Apostle John calls it the lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. James 1, 14 through 16, uh, such an important text. It says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, here's, here's the process of, of going down. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James' warning for the church, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. So you see, sin starts as a temptation. Then you are, are carried away, uh, enticed by lust. That's the, the evil desire or passion that's, that's burning. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Here, that's immorality. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do you still think sin is something for us just to play around with and there's no consequences? When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is why Paul says we need to kill it. We need to kill it. Now, we're getting closer to the root of this matter here. Um, 
what activates evil desire, what, what inflames lust, um, what leads to impure thoughts um, and immoral behavior. The next word is covetousness or, or greed. Now, now we're getting close to the root here. Did you know coveting is the last sin listed of the Ten Commandments? But really, you know, it's the motivation behind almost all other sins. You can put pride in there as well, but it was greed that was behind Satan's fall. And he still covets what is God's. To covet something is to desire for what isn't yours. It is to desire for what is forbidden. It is to desire for what is against the will of God. It is to desire for something you have no right to and you're not entitled to. It's the world, it's the word planexia, and it comes from two Greek words, pleon, which means more, exion, which means to have. It's the desire to have more than you have. It's the opposite of contentment. And in the case of the fallness of the human heart, it is the desire to have more of something you're not entitled to. And this, of course, is self-seeking pride. When it's directed towards money, it ends up in stealing. It just takes on a different form. When it's directed towards fame, it ends up in, in boasting. When it's directed towards worldly success, it ends up in selfish ambition. And when it's directed towards power, it ends up in intimidation and tyranny. See our government. So, listen, every sin comes from this. You, it really does. The reason you do any sin is because you have decided that you want to do what it is that you want to do. You will take what you have no right to take. That's what coveting is. Jesus even said in Matthew 5.28, uh, anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's that longing, that lusting, that thing of that, that you can't have. Why? Because it's a reflection in the heart of a longing for what you don't have the right to have. So we are at the bottom with greed and, and covetous, aren't we? Well, not exactly. The end of verse 5 in the uh, New American Standard Bible says, in covetous, which amounts to idolatry. It amounts to idolatry. What is idolatry? Worshiping something other than God, right? Exodus 20, verse 3, first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. So idolatry then is really the root of all sin. It's when you stop worshiping God and you decide you're going to worship essentially yourself. It's like saying, God, I will not submit to you as my sovereign. Not going to do it. I want what I want. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you're not going to tell me what I can and cannot have. I'm going to determine that. Market, it is self-worship. It is really self-worship. It is the opposite of Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Instead of seeking what is righteous, and what the will of God is, you're seeking whatever you want. That's idolatry. You have replaced God. You are now God. And this is how the pathology of sin works. 
When you're an idolater, you worship yourself, you become greedy, then you sat to satisfy your greed. You begin to covet what you have no right to. And out of that rises evil desire, which then entices your lust. Then lust begins to cultivate the mind, creating impure thoughts. And when that's conceived, James says, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives us a, a similar warning as we have here in Colossians. He says in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Paul says these things don't belong anywhere near your life. Verse 4 let there be no filthiness or, or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is not fitting. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Almost the exact same message as we have in, in Colossians, isn't it? The link is from immoral behavior, back to impure thoughts, back to... Uh, being inflamed by passion, back to enticed by lust, back to the fact that we are greedy for whatever we don't have the right to, back to the fact we worship ourselves rather than God. And Paul says, we better not even be named among these sins. For at one time you were darkness. You were darkness. You actually were. But now, now you are light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light. So again, Paul says, put it all to death. Kill it at the root, as it is all amounts to idolatry. You know, our ability to, to live out the, the gospel, live out the, the Christian life, is not related to um, somebody um, that you come and listen to every Sunday at church and and uh, the guy gives you a, a pep talk, or I called it last week, a, a TED talk. And it is directly related to what you believe about God, what you know about your own sinful self. And if you have a superficial view of God and an elevated view of yourself, you're set up to worship yourself and not God. And what's wrong with man-centered preaching is it's of no help, it provides no strength against sin, because your strength against sin does not come from feeling good about yourself, it comes from a broken and contrite heart. Isaiah 66, verse 2, the Lord says, But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of contrite heart, and who trembles at my word. No one can give you anything more powerful than a deep and wide and and high understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done and what his word says. If you are consumed with the glory of God, if you are consumed with the truths about Jesus Christ, if the word concerning Christ dwells in you richly, 
if your theology of Christ is deep and true, then you are a true worshiper and sin is dealt with at its roots. You are not going to be an idol worshiper who puts yourself in the place of God, are you? You wouldn't dare. This is why we teach the entire counsel of God. This, uh, if this week's verses includes two lists of sins or five lists of sins, you're going to get two lists of sins or five lists of sins. Probably not going to hear a great sermon, Pastor. But you're going to get what the scripture says preached to you, why it is for sanctification. It is for our sanctification. It's 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Preach the word. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Um, exciting, um, um, inspiring verses. Um, dig down, um, challenging sin verses. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, I think it's here, when people will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. When you only hear preaching that tries to make you feel better about yourselves, alarms and sirens should be going off. Hopefully. It is completely antithetical to true sanctification. So the Christian needs to be killing the corrupting sins in their life. At the root, it is idolatry. How serious is it to kill sin? Well, look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The kind of things that we're talking about here, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetous, and idolatry, these are the kinds of sins that damn people to hell forever. So then why would you engage in them? You've been rescued out of the wrath of God and the domain of darkness. You've been empowered by his Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, he gives us two very good reasons why you don't do this. Number one, these are the very things that God punishes unbelievers in hell forever for. And then how about number two? You know better because you have lived there before. Why on earth would you go back? That was your former life. That is who you were. Why are you putting back on the nasty, smelly, filthy clothes? After Christ has clothed you in righteousness, his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11 is a great verse. Notice what it says. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, this takes us to our... Final point, we must put off sinful practices. We must put off sinful practices. Notice verses 8 to 9. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, seen talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. We'll stop right there. Here's the second list that Paul begins now the opposite way. <laughs> the first list began with the act, and then we went down to the foundational motive. Here he begins with the motive and, and moves towards the act. The motive is anger that develops into wrath, that releases malice, that turns into slander and abusive speech, and then lying. Notice what Paul is saying in verse 8. He's saying, look, put them all away. All of them away. Put them off to the side. Rid yourself of this filth. And the verb he uses here is this term I've been referring to, to throw off your dirty clothes. Some have suggested it's a picture of the life of the early Christians. When they were baptized, they would take off their old outer dirty garment. They'd go into the waters, be baptized. And when they came out of the waters, they'd be given a, a new clean you know, maybe white robe as a symbol of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Paul is saying, you need to lay aside the old lifestyle. You, you got to push those, those old, dirty clothes far away. Lay them aside, all of them. And in this particular category, he's not talking about necessarily what we do. But this, this list is sort of more focused on what we say. The, the vicious capacity that we have to use our tongues for disgraceful sins is heartbreaking. It is, I can't imagine the Lord looking upon his church. And, and here's the things that we say on top of the things that we do, right? I mean, and, and Paul here in this list is he, he looks at what's coming out of the mouth and it goes all the way to where it arises from. And, and so he begins with anger. Anger. And, and this Greek word is pictured as a, a deep down um, smoldering hostility. A, a resentful bitterness. We all know that there's such a thing as a righteous anger. And then a sinful anger. This is obviously the sinful anger. This is a deep down smoldering hostility of resentment and bitterness that you have towards someone. Or it can even be towards the world, right? Interesting in my word study of it, provocation, provo uh, provocations do, uh, do not create his anger, but merely reveals that he is an angry person. So it's not necessarily the thing that happened. It was already there. It was just waiting to explode. Next, Paul says, anger then bursts forth into wrath. And this is the Greek word thumos, and in contrast to anger, wrath refers to a sudden outburst. Okay? Anger is this, this smoldering pot that's, that's deep down there waiting to come out, where wrath is a total outburst. So you start with this deep-seated anger. It's down in your heart, and it suddenly explodes with a sudden outburst. The Greeks actually use this word to describe the kind of fires that would burn up the, the fields or the grass real quickly, come through, just burn it up real quick. It was quickly inflamed. So deep-seated is the anger explodes into wrath and it leads to malice. Malice is a general term for moral evil and this has to do with um, how you speak. 
So it's evil in your heart, evil intent, and when anger, wrath, and malice exists, it then results in the next word, slander. And this is the word where we get blasphemy from. When this word is used in relation to God, it's blasphemy. And when it's used in relation to people, it's translated slander. And slander is a terrible sin that exists outside and inside the church, right? Unfortunately, it's a terrible expression of a deep-seated anger that is part of our remaining sinful flesh. These are the battles of the flesh here that just come flying out and we suddenly look like a depraved person. It's like, what got into him? James 3, 9 through 10 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Should not be. But the next sin we need to lay aside and and cast off is abusive speech. And to borrow some of Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good to build up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear it. Jump down to verse 31. He continues, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and brawling and slander be put away from you. Same thing. Along with all malice. Exact same words we see in Colossians. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Guess what? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We should be full of forgiveness, not constantly indicting everybody. This is unacceptable, it is abusive, it is obscene, it is blasphemous language that slanders fellow image bearers of God. That's what James says. So that's difficult for us to to hear. But why would we think for a moment that the Lord would be pleased with that no matter what? Why do we think it's justified? Listen to what our Lord said in Matthew 12, 34 through 37. Speaking of religious leaders, you brood of snakes. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure that is good, and the evil man brings out his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We ought to be speaking what is edifying, comforting, and and encouraging, what is virtuous, and, and what is godly to one another. But there is a, a, a deeper seated anger that's smoldering in our hearts and it, and it bursts into wrath and, and it results in evil which shows up then as slander and, and blasphemy of, of those around us. And then let's look at verse 9 there. Do not lie to one another. The result of all this means that the truth will take a back seat to whatever our agenda is. We're just off the deep end. 
and we're going to say and, and do whatever pleases us at this point. And um, this is the way that we express our anger. This is our self-worship. I don't care what God thinks of this. I don't care what God has said. I don't care if I hurt my neighbor. I don't care if I come across as a stumbling block. I'm exploding and I... Hands here. Um, how many times have you, you've ever gone into like an angerous, uh, just a, a, a bout and it feels good? You ever done that? Ooh. I used to have that constantly. It felt good. That is straight from Satan. That is demonic. I used to go through it all the time. It's like I got off on it. I got high off of it, honestly. You just totally lose it and break things and smash stuff and and look at all this destruction around me. You know, ah, are you kidding me? You look like a, you look demon-possessed. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Satan lied to Eve. Satan lied deceiving Eve. Adam and Eve lied to God. Attempting to evade responsibility. Cain lied to God about his brother. Abraham lied to Sarah. Abraham lied about Sarah. Sarah lied to the angels. It's just going through the first couple of pages of Genesis. Everyone's a liar. And that is because Satan is the father of lies. Paul is horrified that we would be so idolatrous as to live with a smoldering angle that unleashes itself on people and justifies itself and even leads to lies to, to fulfill its agenda. Paul is horrified of this kind of behavior. And so we must also be mortified by such things. And you better start all the way down at the bottom with that whole issue of, of, of self-worship. Your anger is connected to, to idolatry. And it smolders until something all of a sudden comes and, and fans it. And, and then it explodes on who's ever around. We should be marked by forgiveness. What did Jesus say? Seven times 77? Keep forgiving. So we are told here in this matter of sanctification to, to reach up and to, to live heavenly virtues, those one through four. And that's the upside. The downside is to realize that we have to kill the members of the bodies down here as well. You can't just live up in the heavenlies and forget all about what's going on down here. We have to deal with this sin at its foundational point, at its very origin, which is idolatry. It is idolatry. Now, as we close, I just I want you to remember once again the verse, one of the verses we started out with. Because it's easy to walk away here and say, I got this big list I've got to do. Paul says I got to do it. I got to get rid of all this. Remember what Romans 8.13 said. And before I, I read that, just... Let me also remind you, you know, speaking to Ephesians and Ephesians 6 and um, the armor of God. What is our only offensive weapon that God gives us? Yeah, the sword. Okay, and so the sword, as the, the, the sword is the word of God. The sword is the one offensive weapon that we're given, period. We're just given armor other than that. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is our battling weapon that, that God has given us. 
And so then view that with, with Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's just you and the flesh. See you later. You're, you're gone. But if by the Spirit you put to death, how can I put to death anything if I've got no weapons? God gives us a weapon. I mean, we are filled and empowered by his Holy Spirit, but the Spirit is the word of truth. And so we've got, we've got, the, we've got the, the sword, and so he says, you need to put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So just remember that this is not a, a thing that you're going at on your own. It, it, is, it is only by God's grace, it's only through his Spirit. But Paul says, you need to participate. You can't just sit there and say, oh, well, I tried. Paul's saying, in a very practical sense, get rid of it. If your phone's a stumbling block and you spend all day on it and you're looking at stuff you shouldn't, now you pluck out the eye, throw away your phone. Like, the, the teaching here is get, kill it now, once and for all. Don't go, Mom, I'm going to try this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at it 50%. Come at it at the root and kill it. Because this is idolatry, and it breeds into just all these dangerous sins. If you are a God worshiper and a Christ worshiper, the battle is won. The battle is won. So walk in the, the victory of what Christ has accomplished. All those sins are paid. All of those sins are defeated. If you are in Christ, those sins no longer possess power over you. But Paul says there's a very real battle, and, and he says, I do these things I don't want to do. Okay? So we need to deal with it. We need to live in the heavenlies, yes, but we need to be realistic and we need to kill the deeds of the flesh. And Paul calls us to do both. Okay? You guys need uh, prayers this morning? You're welcome to come forward. I want to invite you to please stand as we sing the song of invitation.